the underground bunker of the Civitas Studio in Raleigh, North Carolina, it's Civitalk with your hosts, Brooke Medina and Ray Nothstein. We're here to connect culture with civics, making it relevant to your daily life. And dare we say, existence at a time where too many are triggered and offended. So, relax, but buckle up and let's wade into the deep end of what's really happening in your old north state. Welcome to another edition of Civitalk. Brooke is back. Uh, Bob did a good job filling in for Brooke, and she is back with us, so I know, I know a lot of folks are happy about that. We are going to discuss the Woke Santa. Woke Santa's made his appearance this year. Christmas fashion. We've got a big announcement, which you've heard about already. The changing North Carolina demographics and trends and what that means going forward for our state in state and local and the national election. And the best of 2020, it's been such a great year. We're going to discuss that. Brooke, what are you excited about for Christmas this year? Ooh, that's a, that is a very happy in question. First off, I'm glad to be back. Bob, thank you for covering for me, but it is good to be back here. And, um, you know, I am most excited, honestly, just about sitting on my couch with my kids in front of the fire, wearing pajamas and watching movies. Like, that's all I want to do. I don't want to get off that couch except to go refill my sangria or my water bottle and get another brownie. That's what I want over Christmas break. Do you have a do you have a favorite Christmas movie, Brooke? <gasps> oh, OK. Um, So I love the elf and my husband actually just bought an elf buddy, the elf inflatable for our front yard. Um, And I know everybody says they love the elf, but I really love the elf. And that has just been a long-standing one that I enjoy. But I also like White Christmas, the the Haynes sisters. And my sister and I, this is a fun little fact, my sister and I actually had Haynes sisters um, dresses from this one scene where they sing sisters, sisters, blah, 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 blah. Um, so we actually had dresses like that and the fans, and we did a talent show wherein we we danced and sang to that. So White Christmas is my second favorite. Is Meet Me in St. Louis, have you seen that? Is that a Christmas film? I can't remember. It's been a while since I've... I, feel I like don't that, know. It is a Christmas. It's got Judy Garland. Um, it's, I think, primarily a musical, but it takes place in St. Louis. And it, I, I, I do know part of it takes place in Christmas. I don't know. I've seen that cited before... As a as kind of a comforting Christmas film, my wife really likes Meet Me in St. Louis. She forced me to watch it a few years ago, but <laughs> she forced you to. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. Well, that that reminds me. Speaking of your wife, you tweeted something the other day. I think it was on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, where you were talking <laughs> about Christmas presents and how she was already wearing some of hers. Is that right? Oh yeah. I mean. It, Brooke, I mean, I come home, I get in the door. The first thing she says, and this is not like ironic or slapstick comedy. Can we open Christmas presents tonight? Uh, first of all, Kelly, I haven't even finished shopping for you. Like usually I don't even shop till like Christmas Eve. And also, I'm just kidding. Actually, I've gotten a little, I had to get ahead because I, I, I learned a couple of years ago. Uh, this is, you know, of course, pre-pandemic. I tried to actually shop a couple of days to, before Christmas and it was a nightmare. So I got ahead of the curve. I've learned that lesson. But um, she's like, can we open Christmas presents tonight? The kids <laughs> haven't even asked that. You know, the kids like, 
will look at their presents, but they haven't even like bothered to ask that. And of course, she's asking to open open her present. And then as soon as she gets something in the mail, she like rips it open, and you know if it's something that's hers, she starts wearing it. That is so like me, Kelly, and I really well, you, have. You are we you we had a discussion about you a couple nights ago, and uh, Kelly goes, Brooke and I are the same, and I go, Yeah, you guys are the same in a lot of ways, different in a few ways, but the same the same in a lot of ways. And plus, right, you, both, yeah, like you, we, both this, I, you both have the same enneagrams. Oh, is she a three too? Yes, I mean she's totally Kelly. a three. And then she brags about being a three, which is a totally a three thing to do. That is so what we do. See, this is why we're the same. And I would totally like, I have already bought myself or had James buy me a couple of my Christmas gifts. And yes, I am wearing them already. So I get it. Christmas is a state of mind, not just a day of the year. And since it's a state of mind, I feel like I should be wearing my gifts. Yeah. I mean, I'm a little bit more old fashioned. Our family sometimes would open stuff on Christmas Eve, but um, I'm like, no, we're not opening our our gifts on December 8th, Kelly. <laughs> I mean, I guess you can have some standards if you want. But anyways, well, okay, speaking of Christmas, what about this woke Santa, Ray? What's going on here? Yeah, it was just, uh, I don't know if I saw it first on Twitter, just an article somewhere else, but I saw a kid. It was with his mom. I don't think the dad was there. It was the mom, and he was asking Santa for a Nerf gun. And the Santa immediately went from like jovial to lecturing the kids on, no, we don't do guns. No, guns, guns are scary and um, Santa does not do guns and guns are a no-no. And then the mom was like, it's, it's, a, it's a foam gun. It's a foam, plastic foam gun. And then he's like, no, we don't do guns. So, and then the kid starts crying because he's basically lecturing the kid oh, about guns. Yeah. It's really sad. And so everybody has labeled this guy woke Santa. And there's been lots of responses and articles to it. Steven Crowder had a follow-up video where he interviewed the family and basically affirmed the child um, in his quest for a Nerf gun. I think he maybe he even got one and was sending, sending it to the kid. But it just sort of like, we don't have to politicize every little thing. And if a kid, a boy especially, wants a gun that's mm-hmm. not going to hurt anybody, it's foam. It's not going to uh, cause any problems. No one's going to get shot. No one's going to confuse it for a real gun. Nothing bad is going to happen, except maybe the foam breaks apart if the dog chews it. But other than that, nothing at all is going to happen. And just to see like the kid being shattered and... Just because you want to make a point, you know, a political point. It's just ridiculous. Well, yeah, for sure. But this actually reminds me because you were saying no one's going to get hurt. But I do have a story of someone getting hurt with a Nerf gun. Obviously not mortal wound. But so every Thanksgiving and every Christmas, our family has a tradition of getting into a Nerf battle. And so we have about 30 Nerf guns at home of all shapes and sizes and bulletry so we've got like the little nerf cross or the little nerf minis and then there's the nerf crossbows there's the nerf rivals which are these like little circle little balls and one year my daughter she got this like girly nerf crossbow and she aimed it straight at my son's face and whopped him in the nose with it and he started bleeding he got a nosebleed as a result of that so i mean you just you just never know ray never know wow uh, that that is crazy that you guys. Yeah, but we're not going to stop buying Nerf guns. He just had to. He just had to go to the bathroom and 
Well, right. if I could report you guys to somebody that cared, I would. But I don't think anybody, <laughs> yet, I will say yet, anybody cares. So let me ask you, though, um, let's, let's just take a moment, a brief moment, before we get into the serious stuff and discuss Christmas fashion. What are some things that you like to wear or just that excite you about the, uh, the Christmas aura or fashion uh, that's available out there? Mm, mm, that's an excellent question. It's the, the Christmas sartorial options. Uh, so we all know the, the ugly Christmas sweater trend has continued to emerge every November and December. Uh, so there's that, but I can't say that I'm particularly drawn to that because I really don't like the idea of spending $30 on an ugly sweater that I'm not going to wear. Uh, but I like the, the fabrics of Christmas more than anything. I like the colors as well. The emerald greens, the velvet fabrics, the satin with like fur trim, things like that. I, I like just those wintry, warm wonderland fabrics. Yeah, I mean, I like That's those too. Don't, like don't you? I mean, don't you yeah, have like a fur trim collar or something, right? Well, no, but uh, <laughs> I do like kind of like the classic look in terms of some of those fra- fabrics, especially some of the traditional plaids could be good. I've got a plaid bow tie. Sometimes I'll wear at Christmas. It's um, it's called the, I think the 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 Foster bow tie, and it it's based on some colors from Kentucky, and it looks good. And there's some few other things. There's always some jacket. I have a, a actually a red camel hair blazer. I don't wear it very often, but every once in a while I'll wear it uh, for Christmas. And there's there's a few other things. So I, I just like clean, classic looks um, for most clothing. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so over Christmas, though, I'm trying to think. I, it is fun to like dress up as a family, which is going to be so different this year, right? Um, we would usually dress up and go to our church does something called Christmas at Deepak, which is the downtown Durham Performing Arts Center. We rent out the whole thing, and there are like seven different performances of Christmas shows that the church puts on. Uh, and we would usually dress up for that, but obviously that's not going to happen this year. So, and then there's the governor's curfew too. So not only will Christmas be a little different this year, but so will New Year's. Um, so I feel like as much as I want to dress up over the holidays this year, I might just be wearing pajamas. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll probably, uh, be dressed up some because I am going out for Christmas. I, I don't know it's if fun. I'm defying any orders, but we're going on some small trips, uh, family trips and, uh, probably go down to Wilmington too for a couple days as a family. So there'll be some opportunity. And Hey, we're actually staying near the Costco in uh, Wilmington. So a new Costco, that's exciting, right? Spend your Christmas Eve there. I would get get your family, uh, treat them to some of those, those hot dogs and the the mocha slushies. (laughs) Yeah. I like going to every once in a while, just going to a different, see, do you like the one in Cary? Um, or do you like the one in Raleigh better? Uh, okay, so that's a good question, and I know only a limited number of our audience is going to care about my answer to this. Right. But so the Carry Costco carries particular items that the Raleigh one doesn't, and part of it is I would say because of the the demographics in Carry. So there are a lot more people that are from Asia. Right. Uh, both in India and China, there, and so they carry some more foreign food options that. I enjoy that the Raleigh Costco does not. However, um, 
I only live about 10 minutes from the Raleigh Costco. And so I am there entirely too much. And so I like the Raleigh Costco for its convenience, although my wallet might not say the same. Yeah, and I ran into your mom, who I thought was your younger sister at the Raleigh Costco. Yes. Oh, she's going to have to listen to this episode. That will make her very happy to hear. So let's let's jump into probably what most people want to hear about. There has been a joining of forces between the Locke Foundation and Civitas Institute permanently. They will be working together. Uh, both forces um, will be one unit now. So just walk us through that. Why... Um, why now, Brooke, and how is this going to help uh, not just North Carolina, but I think really just uh, state think tanks maybe across the country in terms of magnifying our voice and, and really advocating for the citizens in the state who want a less intrusive, less burdensome government who want space uh, from their lawmakers, which is hard to get right now given this pandemic has really um, magnified and blown up uh you know, whether it be Roy Cooper's executive orders or just things that we've heard from lawmakers that have kind of spoiled um, just the ability to get out, the ability for some small businesses to flourish in the state, the ability to find gainful employment with some sectors. Just walk walk us through that, why that is important right now. Uh, yes. So as Ray mentioned, this is a this is a permanent transition. We are going forward. Uh, after January 1st as a unified John Locke Foundation that brings Civitas staff over and brings Civitas products and Civitas expertise over into John Locke Foundation. And we're going to be the largest right-leaning conservative public policy organization in the Southeast. Uh, And so there are a number of reasons why this is the right time for that to happen. Um, Let me just give you some quick background. John Locke Foundation is 30 years old. Civitas Institute is 15 years old. And so with that combined experience, we also have a staff of approximately 30 plus people. And uh, many of them are, are in research. And the policy expertise that we bring to the table uh, we've been able to influence collectively the the policy landscape of North Carolina over the years. And if anyone had lived in North Carolina 10 years prior, uh, they would see that this is certainly a different and a better Carolina than it was 10 years ago. And so there is a, this unique window of opportunity, but also there are some very real threats that are happening right now. The left is continuing at a national level to pour money into North Carolina uh, if you saw how the money was spent during the Senate campaigns in North Carolina and some of the other campaigns, even Michael Bloomberg, what didn't he pour millions and millions of dollars into our lieutenant governor's race? Yep. Um, and so there's uh, the, the left wants to turn North Carolina more into a Virginia. And so we are, I would say we're a gateway in many ways to some of the other conservative elements of the Southeast. And so we need to hold the line and not only hold the line, but be on offense and so by combining our capabilities, we're streamlining our messages, uh, we're becoming more efficient. And uh, one of the ways in which Amy Cook, who is the CEO of John Locke Foundation, she said, we're moving from think tank to battle tank. And I would say we're, uh, you know, Civitas is going to uh, come on to John Locke Foundation. And so us together, we will be 
more academic, but also more punchy. And we'll be able to actually get stuff done, I would say, to even a greater level than we already have, which we still both have a lot of accomplishments that we can point to over the past decade. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's just so much um, similar mission um, tasks oriented just towards the common good and, and trying to highlight many of the same issues. So it makes a lot of sense. I think, you know, getting back to North Carolina being this gateway, I mean, we've seen Georgia, which was a reliable red state, even more so, at least historically in presidential elections, um, then North Carolina kind of uh, collapsed here in this last election. So it, it does kind of pinpoint even more importantly, the leadership of North Carolina in the Southeast as being a, a tone setter, as being a trendsetter in some of these elections. So it's fascinating. North Carolina's it's hard to pinpoint and nail down because I think a lot of people expected the blue wave to ascend in North Carolina quicker than it has um, to to kind of overtake the state, especially with the urban influx of people coming in from whether it be the Midwest or Northeast. Not all of those people are liberals, but they're just new voters obviously coming into the state. But we're different too. I mean, we've got a lot of thriving small towns in, um, in, in relationship or in comparison to Georgia. Atlanta has become such an epicenter and all the Atlanta suburbs and outgrowth uh, of that whole area has really transformed that state. In North Carolina, you still see a lot of, uh, more so than Atlanta, conservative suburbs, conservative, obviously conservative, conservative rural areas have not kind of collapsed to sort of the urban, uh, even though the urban areas have become more blue in North Carolina, especially when you look at parts of Mecklenburg County where they had a lot of Republican leadership um, in, in local government there has has collapsed and a similar thing going on in Wake County. But it's just fascinating to me with the changes in the state. I do think combining forces makes a lot of sense. The left is going to continue, like you said, to focus with pinpoint um, precision and money on North Carolina and changing it. And so this does make a lot of sense to me. I think it's a good move. And, uh, you know, I think one of the exciting things is hopefully everybody that is, is joining that process will be able to play to their strengths and um, focus their work in a way that it can be highlighted to a greater degree and that everybody's uh, work is, is just sort of, you know, empowered and uh, magnified across the state. Yeah, no, I think that that's a good way to put it. And really that's, you know, internally as a staff, that's something that uh, you guys can expect to see on the external outward facing front as we produce new content, uh, both at johnlock.org and at Carolina Journal. And so the Civitas products will be rolled into the John Locke products and you will begin to see the ways in which our expertise is able is um, able to be highlighted, I would say, to an even larger audience as a result of this. And, and so that's an exciting thing. And the reason that's exciting is because public policy, I've said this before, public policy is the way that we love our neighbors politically. And so if we're advocating for good policies that produce good outcomes for people, produce more prosperity, but also a, a more robust civil society, then that's a net good for the um, for the public. And so by us joining forces like this, 
Uh, we believe that our impact can be stronger on behalf of North Carolinians and we can see more policy victories. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, there just there has to be more of this, right? Unification uh, among center-right organizations and just a center-right population if we're going to have victories against the left. And when you're talking about policy victories, electoral victories, these type of things have to happen. If you can't be have fracture, I mean, you have right now you have uh, some fracturing just in the in the political sense of people on the right in Georgia, and it's causing some problems. It may cause problems. It's yet to see, but it could cause problems in these Senate races, which are are really important not just for Georgia but the entire country coming up. And so um, that's something I think that the the conservatives, the right, whatever you want to call it, across the country. Um, and in North Carolina, too, I think have to figure out. I mean, there's obviously civil wars going on in the, in the Democratic Party. You see some of the Black Lives Matters groups are upset with Biden right now and are not getting feel like they're not getting enough um, say in his new administration. So you've got all kinds of fracturing on the left. But if if there can be kind of a, a, a unification, especially like you had in the 1980s um, under Ronald Reagan of fusionism with libertarians, conservatives, um, different groups on the right, kind of all under one big big umbrella. I think that'll be important for preserving, uh, not just uh, in creating strong public policy, but also preserving the constitutional uh, views and roles of government that we all should have, that we all should embrace and fight for um, all across this land, and especially in the state where we could be a leader. Hopefully, that North Carolina continues and, and is even stronger leader to the rest of the country, not just on the area of public policy, but preserving the rule of law, the system of government that has alleviated poverty, that has championed um, individualism, that has championed private property, that championed all these things that has been the for the betterment of our state and nation. So that's exciting yeah. to me. I mean, it, it's just exciting to be involved in something like that where, look, I mean, the stakes are high now. We, we see the left has has radicalized in a lot of sense. I mean, the, the Democratic Party, and this is not to bash all Democrats because there's a lot of good Democrats out there, but the Democratic Party, especially at the national level, ha- has radicalized to some degree. And their agenda is not its not an American agenda. It's not an agenda that I think is, tr- is uh, true to the founding. And Republicans have problems in these areas too. So the pro- Republican Party does not get a, um, a pass on this at all. But, um, you know, they're when you radicalize against the founding, the principles that I think you cannot advance upon, you know, you cannot evolve past, then uh, you're a detriment to this nation and you, there has to be defeats. And we have a free country, so people are allowed to believe what they can, what, what they what they believe, but they, they need to be defeated if they're going to destroy the fabric of the nation that has been something that has lifted up all boats uh, across yeah. the land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and you know, Civitas, where our tagline is North Carolina's conservative voice, and conservatism is is conserving the constitutional order of things. I mean, that's what it cares about here in the United States in in its proper form. I would say, um, and and I feel like very few would disagree with that if they're on the right. Um, and even though there are disagreements among some on the right, there's and a lot of it has become just so hyper political. Um, you know, it's like you're either for this candidate or against them, and then everything else is a wash. And we we need to be able to really be able to disagree respectfully while remembering that in the essentials, 
we have unity and ensure that that's what we protect because radical progressivism cares nothing of any of that. Those values that we can unite behind, they will not, and they will actually actively try to oppose it. And so I'm not talking about those center-right or more moderate Democrats. I'm talking about the ones that really are dead set on imp- implementing socialism. They they are for a socialist economy. Um, and even those who aren't necessarily that, but they are a populist like a Warren, an Elizabeth Warren, who says she's a capitalist, but uh, still favors heavy, heavy government interference interference. Um, you know, those ideas are antithetical to limited government. And so it's really essential that instead of a splintering and fighting one another, that we circle the wagons and then actually we advance and have more of a winning mentality and, uh, and prove to the public and why our ideas make more sense. Yeah. And I think this whole, the COVID-19 stuff just is a reminder. It's a powerful reminder of the dangers of central planning. We now see government's trying to uh, manage this crisis, uh, this this pandemic in a way that's just so detrimental to citizens and people need space from government. That doesn't mean that you do things that are dangerous or that it means you do things that harm your neighbors. Uh, it means you act a responsible citizen with virtue. But um, the way that the heavy handed nature in some of the regulations and that we treat, uh, as Dan Forrest said, I mean, I think this is one of the good, he was a loser in the campaign, but I think he made a good point. Let's stop treating people like children. And, yeah. uh, you know, that's an important point is that look, let's empower citizens, let's empower small businesses to protect people and, and not just treat them like they need to be told what to do all the time. And that they need to have their hand held as they cross the street while their business withers away. So, uh, these are all important things that I think are a mi- reminder that, you know, people need space from government. Citizens need space from government. Government plays a role uh, like other entities and institutions in our nation, but it is not dominant. It is not It should never be something that is dominant. And this is what is discouraging to me, but it's a, why I'm so excited to be in a movement like this. But it's discouraging at the same time to see people, whether you log on Facebook or Twitter or whatever social media, who are begging for just federal and state interaction in every aspect of their life. And I just can't imagine living like that. I mean, to live in such a, a, a way of fear, and I think part of it is some of it's not really fear, it's just there's a political agenda attached to it, but some people are genuinely fearful. But to live in a way where they just beg and plead for more uh, government control over their lives, I mean, does that not... Just sometimes when you wake up, Brooke, does that not just strike you as crazy? <laughs> it, uh, I think the way you said it earlier when you said that it was discouraging is is really accurate. Um, but something, so I was in a conversation with a couple of people or several people uh, on, on Tuesday, and I don't know if you were in the room during this time of the conversation, Ray, but uh, one of the things that I think is just kind of like a an oxymoron or a paradox of our time is that while we are seeing a, an exponential growth in a desire for homeschooling, a desire for homesteading, like growing things on our own property, raising chickens, like we're seeing all of these sort of um, self-reliant ventures that are happening in civil society. And uh, at the same time, we're also seeing growing calls for government intervention. And so it's like, these two things seem mighty antithetical. On one end, people are trying to assert themselves as autonomous and individualists. And then on the other, it's like, 
no, we, we, we need more government interference and intervention into this area or that. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to reconcile why that is. Do you have any, any thoughts? No, I mean, I think a diagnosis is just a, a need for more civic education, just broadly in culture and society. And that's one way I think think tanks can be helpful and useful. Um, in assisting in those areas and, and, and advocating for that. But yeah, I mean, it's hard to pinpoint that exactly. I do think that there's a, there's just an element of this population. And I think we should be um, aware of that. They just want more government intervention. They want government control over their lives. They don't, they don't think that the, you know, the federal government is $28 trillion in debt and is bankrupt. And it's even more than that. When you count unfunded liabilities, they don't think that way. And, they just think that there are things that they're entitled to. That mm-hmm. We have a culture of entitlement, and there are things that I should get because uh, I'm entitled, and we have first-world problems in this nation, and people think that they should have that. And if the government can provide me that with that the quickest way possible, then I'll be for that. And so you're right. There is, there is some, uh, there, there's some contradictions, some hypocriticalness, on on that side where people you're right they they want more freedoms in certain areas uh we see this with the with our view of rights you know people and and this is getting back to the civic education question people want you know a view of rights where i want this i want that i I deserve this i want that but they don't want to be responsible for their actions or they don't want responsibility playing a role i mean the founders were big on rights, but they were big on responsibility too. With rights come responsibility. With rights comes virtue. With rights comes all these things that you were expected to do as a citizen. And uh, a lot of people don't like that because it, it requires sacrifice sometimes. It requires hardship. It requires things that are not easy to hear and so or do. And so I, I do think that's an important element to this. And I don't know if that specifically answers your question, but I think it does play a role. And I, there's just a lot of contradiction too, because let's be honest, I, I'm not, there's lots of people in America and lots of people in North Carolina who are much smarter than me, but there are a lot of people who they don't think coherently all the time and they haven't been trained. It's not their fault necessarily, but they haven't been trained to think coherently. And so they do things that contradict them themselves. And I do it too. We're all, we're all, there's human nature, right? We're all hypocritical to some degree. Yeah, no. And I think being humble enough to acknowledge that and realizing, okay, I've got my own blind spots too. Uh, But really what that does get back to, like you mentioned, is civic education. And we keep talking about this and something I'm excited about and I want our audience to actually be on the lookout for in 2021 is the North Carolina History Project, which is something that John Locke Foundation has created over the years. And Um, it it is going to be just redesigned and and something that can be used either by homeschoolers or students in charter schools or even students in public schools and parents can supplement their uh, current history education with it. But that is a tool that will help them better understand the history of our state, uh, as well as perhaps even elements of just our founding uh, as a, as a nation. And so I think that's really, really interesting. important to just drill down on civic education, but also kind of a subset of that that civic education, like you mentioned, were rights and responsibilities. So we talk a lot about natural rights, but, uh, you know, even before the whole idea of natural rights during um, post-enlightenment period, there was this focus on 
responsibilities. What do I owe my fellow man? What do I owe my community? And if we're, if we fail to govern ourselves in a way where we realize that we, we do actually have a duty to our fellow man, we are not an island unto ourselves and we actually have responsibilities towards others. If we can govern ourselves in a way that acknowledges that and effectively responds to that responsibility, um, we won't need government to intervene all the time because parents will naturally take care of their children. I will naturally take care of those in my community that are destitute or poor or the sick and the hurting. I mean, the church was, uh, the Christian church was excellent at this when they were the ones that really started the, the concept of hospitals and orphanages. Like they were the ones that realized, no, I have a responsibility and a duty to my fellow man. Um, and I'll tell you what, private institutions are a heck of a lot better at making sure that those duties are executed efficiently and effectively compared to the government. Yeah, I think that you nailed it, Brooke. I mean, we have to ask ourselves continually. We have to do that through American history. What is our capacity for self-government? I've written about this, especially in relation to firearms. I mean, we have a Bill of Rights that uh, are inherent, and we have to ask ourselves continually, if we have all these rights, what is our capacity as an American people, as, as people of North Carolina, for self-government? And if we don't believe we have that, then we really don't deserve it because we can't work that out in a... In a, in a kind of in a culture in a manner of freedom, you, you can't work that out. So, uh, you know, a culture that cultivates moral and uh, positive attributes is, is masterful for liberty and self-government. But a culture that collapses in on itself and, and blames everybody else or that you're, you know, I'm entitled to this, uh, that that doesn't work for self-government. It never has. It never will. And that's just the the hard truth of it. So. That's, mm-hmm. that's a, kind of a good way out of close, I think, Brooke. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, once again, this just goes back to one of the reasons that that uh, we have joint capacities with the John Locke Foundation is because we want to be able to make sure that we are, we're holding the line uh, in the way that we're designed to as a public policy advocacy organization uh, to ensure that North Carolinians' liberties um, are preserved so that they can carry out their rights with freedom and um freedom and and liberty so uh you guys thank you so much for joining us this week and as always well at least until the end of the year you can find this episode at nccivitas.org you can also send us a question or comment at radio at nccivitas.org 